This hearing will come to order. Let me welcome you all to the sixth hearing for the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 114th Congress, and our first hearing in 2016. I want to thank Ranking Member Cardin, who of course also chairs, uh, as, uh, serves as a uh, ranking member of the full committee for his cooperation as we continue our important work together to address the important issues within this subcommittee's jurisdiction. Uh, today's hearing will be our second hearing on cybersecurity in this subcommittee, which I believe goes to show the extent to which uh, cyber issues has become a strategic matter, uh, critical to the foreign policy of our nation and subsequently to this committee's work. And we are glad to welcome back as our witness the State Department's Cybersecurity Coordinator, Chris Painter. Uh, this is uh, your second time, I believe, testifying before this subcommittee. Uh, we hope to hear from Mr. Painter today about what has changed since we met just over a year ago at our first cyber hearing of this subcommittee, what global threats we are still facing, and most importantly, what we can do as a nation to deter those threats. The State Department has now released the Department of State International Cyberspace Policy Strategy as mandated by the amendment Senator Cardin and I authored to the 2016 omnibus legislation. We thank Mr. Painter for fulfilling this congressional mandate and producing this document, which will better inform this committee's efforts going forward. And I commend you for standing up the cyber efforts at state and elevating cyber issues to the forefront of our nation's diplomacy. But we still obviously have a lot of questions about uh, how this approach is being implemented, how effective it is in deterring foreign cyber threats, and how we can continue to build uh, viable norms in cyberspace. Our efforts uh, include deterring China and Chinese actors from continuing to conduct uh, commercial espionage against the United States with agreements made last fall, how those agreements are or are not being implemented. Uh, the questions remain about uh, sensitive data being stolen in the breach of the Office of Personnel Management last year and other circumstances uh, around the globe. And so as we discuss Russia and we discuss Ukraine, uh, we discuss Iran, we discuss United Nations activities, this is an important hearing uh, to place our cyber policy in the strategic realm. Uh, and so with that, uh, I'm going to just let everybody know right now we have or are anticipating votes at 11 o'clock, and so we will wait as long as we can, if necessary, into that vote series before we uh, adjourn the committee hearing. Uh, so thank you, Mr. Painter, and with that, I will turn it to our ranking member, Senator Cardin from Maryland. Well, Senator Gardner, first of all, thank you for your leadership on this subcommittee. It's a critically important subcommittee uh, that deals with East Asia, deals with the Pacific, and deals with international cybersecurity policy. Uh, we've certainly have had a very busy agenda under your leadership, and it's been a pleasure to work with you. Uh, we should note the President's in Vietnam that uh, part of the, our challenges is the development of stronger ties with the countries of Asia. Uh, we've also, of course, been much, very much engaged in North Korea and their proliferation activities, and as well as, of course, China. And then later today, there will be a full committee briefing on the trafficking, trafficking and persons report, and there are several countries in Asia that are of major interest in regards to trafficking and other human rights concerns. So this has been a very busy subcommittee, uh, and I thank you for the manner that we've been able to work together, uh, as we should on foreign policy issues without uh, partisan division. So thank you very much. Uh, cyber represents a new domain in global affairs likely to be as significant in shaping the worlds of the 21st century as nuclear weapons were in shaping the 20th century. Uh, how the United States and others in the international community develop norms of behavior, assure freedom of expression, and understand how concepts such as deterrence, supply, and cyberspace will be critical foreign policy challenges in the years ahead. These aren't going to be easy, because it, what one person sees as a national security issue, another looks at as repressive, repressive to the ability of individuals to be able to get information uh, in their country. How t cyber technology is used to advance the flow of information and to protect us against cyber attacks can also be used to repress people from being able to get information by governments that look at cyber as a threat to, uh, to their uh, uh, totalitarian regimes. So w we have challenges here, and how we deal with this is going to be one of the major security challenges that face America. The Internet must belong to its users, not just the states. There are especially repressive regimes like Russia and China that are seeking to block or control access to their people to the Internet. 
we will not be able to realize the full potential of the Internet to support freedom, civil society, and human dignity as long as certain nations continue to severely restrict Internet freedom. We need to be cognizant of the dangers that cyberspace presents for human progress and political rights. The same tools of Internet freedom that can be used to organize movements for free speech uh, can also be used by ISIS to sprue hatred and incite violence against the innocents. Technologies with the potential to open up access to governments can also be hijacked to crush dissent and crush human rights. New net technologies do not take sides in the struggle for human rights, but the United States must. We need to be leaders in upholding the principles of Internet freedom and human rights in cyberspace. We need to synchronize America's undisputed technology leadership with indisputable values and principles. That's what America brings to this international debate. And that's why it's critically important that we develop acceptable international norms in regards to the use of cyber and what is expected. So obviously, uh, it was, we, we, we look forward uh, to building those norms. Last year, the United States and China reached an unprecedented deal to combat cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property with the intent of providing competitive advantages to companies or commercial sectors. Uh, to me, that was an incredibly important moment, but how is it being implemented? And what it, wh how will that lead to acceptable international norms? Uh, the agreement took a new sin significance at the G20 summit in Turkey when China agreed to join the rest of the G20 nations in jointly affirming for the first time that no country should conduct or support information or communication technology-enabled theft of intellectual property with intent to providing competitive advantages to companies or commercial sectors. I will support the U.S.-China cyber agreement. I am concerned that China may not be living up to its terms, and I hope today that we'll have a chance to, to, to review that. I'm concerned that there's too much ambiguity in our current cyber deterrence policy, which leaves our adversaries confused about what behavior in cyberspace the United States is willing to tolerate. We have, we have what we've learned from the Sony attack and the OPM hack in determining what is considered appropriate in terms of an attack as opposed to mapping or other acceptable activities. What have we learned? Where, where, do, where, do, you, where do you draw the right line? And is that clear by U.S. policies internationally? Mr. Chairman, there are a lot of issues that we need to review, and this subcommittee has the responsibility uh, to continue our active engagement, and we're doing that today by this hearing, and I thank you, and I look forward to listening to Mr. Painter. Thank you, Senator Cardin, and of course, we'll turn to our witness, Chris Painter, uh, today. The Honorable Chris Painter, who serves as the State Department's Coordinator for Cyber Issues. In this capacity, Mr. S Mr. Painter coordinates and leads the United States diplomatic efforts uh, to implement the President's international strategy for cyberspace. He works closely with components across the Department, other agencies, the White House, the private sector, and civil society. Prior to joining the State Department, Mr. Painter served in the White House as Senior Director for Cybersecurity Policy and the National Security Staff. During his two years at the White House, Mr. Painter was a senior member of the team that conducted the President's Cyberspace Policy Review and subsequently served as Acting Cyberspace, excuse me, Cybersecurity Coordinator. He coordinated the development of the President's 2011 International Strategy for Cyberspace. Welcome again, Mr. Painter, to the subcommittee, and thank you for your service. We look forward to your testimony. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the, the subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and international cybersecurity policy. It is indeed a pleasure to appear again before your subcommittee to provide an update on our efforts to deter foreign threats and promote global norms in cyberspace. And I would agree that the fact that this committee has shown attention to this issue helps heighten this issue as a, a foreign policy issue, both here and around the world. Since I testified before your subcommittee one year ago, the Department of State has continued to make significant progress, working closely with other federal departments and agencies across all of our policy priorities, including international security, internet governance, cybersecurity due diligence, cybercrime, internet freedom, and internet access. And it is also important to note, as the chairman noted, that last month the department submitted to Congress the Department of State International Cyberspace Policy Strategy uh, and therefore, today, I'm going to focus my remarks on a few of our recent successes in promoting our framework for international cyber stability. However, I am happy to answer any questions regarding the strategy, which, is, which addresses all of our priorities in greater detail, or any questions from my written testimony that was submitted for the record. 
As described in those documents, we have spearheaded the promotion of a framework for stability in cyberspace based on, first, the applicability of international law to state behavior in cyberspace. Second, the identification of additional voluntary norms of responsible state behavior in cyberspace that apply during peacetime. And third, the development and implementation of practical confidence building measures to reduce the risk of misperception and escalation. I would like to highlight today some significant developments that have occurred in the last year to advance this framework. Of special interest to this subcommittee are developments with China. As the subcommittee is well aware, the United States strongly opposes the use of cyber technology to steal intellectual property for commercial advantage and has continuously raised this concern with China for some time. In September 2015, the US and China reached agreement during President Xi Jinping's state visit on several key commitments on cyber issues. And among those commitments, in addition to the ones relating to law enforcement cooperation, were that one, neither country's government will con conduct or knowingly support cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property for commercial advantage, and two, both governments will work together to further identify and promote appropriate norms of state behavior in cyberspace and hold a senior experts group on international security issues in cyberspace. While these commitments do not resolve all of our challenges with China on cyber issues, nevertheless, they do represent a step forward in our efforts to address one of the sharpest areas of disagreement in the US-China bilateral relationship. I would also note that two weeks ago today, on May 11th, we hosted the first meeting of the Senior Experts Group in Washington on international security issues in cyberspace, which provided a forum to further engage China on its views and seek common ground regarding norms of state behavior in cyberspace and other topics. The agreement with China last year is part, in part built upon the success we had a few months earlier with the United Nations Group of Governmental Experts, and when the United States Nations Group of Governmental Experts reached a consensus on its third report since 20, uh, 2009 on issues related to international security in cyberspace. The 2015 GGE report's most significant achievement was its recommendation regarding voluntary norms of state behavior designed in, uh, for peacetime, which included concepts that had been championed by the US. These included norms against harming critical infrastructure or computer security incident response teams, as well as a norm that states respond to appropriate requests in mitigating malicious cyber activity and emanating from their territory. Both of these developments that I just mentioned fed into a third major accomplishment. Last November, the leaders of the G20 meeting in Turkey strongly endorsed the US approach to promoting stability in cyberspace. The leaders' communique affirmed that states should not conduct or support cyber theft of intellectual property for commercial advantage. The communique also highlighted the 2015 GGE report I discussed, affirmed international law, and in particular the UN Charter, applies to state conduct in cyberspace, and endorse the view that all states should abide by norms of responsible state behavior in cyberspace. These three developments, incurring in a remarkably short period of time, along with recent agreements in two regional security organizations to advance our work in developing cyber confidence building measures, collectively represents a major step towards international acceptance of the US approach to promoting stability in cyberspace. It gives us great momentum as we work to convince more states to endorse our approach at the leaders level as we move into up the upcoming round of the GGE that begins in August, where we hope to further develop this framework. While we can be proud of our recent successes, it's important to also acknowledge that we fa still face a range of policy and technical challenges to our vision of an open, interoperable, secure, and reliable cyberspace. As we look ahead, cybersecurity will continue to be a challenge for the United States when we take into consideration the rapidly expanding environment of global cyber threats, the increasing reliance on information, the reality that many developing nations are still in the early stages of their cyber maturity, and the ongoing and increasingly sophisticated use of information technology by terrorists and other criminals. Therefore, the Department of State anticipates a continued increase and an expansion of our cyber-focused diplomatic and capacity-building efforts for the foreseeable future. Uh, again, I'm happy to be here before the subcommittee and happy to take any questions. Thank you, Mr. Painter, and uh, I'll begin with, with questions. Uh, Obviously, over the past several years, since 2011, which with the publication of the International Strategy for Cyberspace uh, out of the White House, uh, we have seen uh, activities from Russia attacking critical infrastructure uh, in Ukraine. Uh, last December, we've seen reports of uh, targeting of U.S. critical infrastructure by various actors. Uh, we've seen news reports of Iranian agents uh, attempting to access uh, a dam uh, near New York City. Uh, we've seen North Korea uh, develop cyber as an asymmetric tool to threaten its neighbors and the United States. Uh, and we, we continue to see other actions uh, despite the 
conversations and negotiations that we have. And so in light of all these attacks from Russia, China, Iran, uh, or supposed or uh, supposed attacks from these nations, does the 2011 cyberspace strategy, international strategy for cyberspace, accurately reflect uh, the threats that we face today? Uh, and if not, what has changed in the 2011 cyberspace strategy and what needs to change? So I, I think the 2011 strategy was, as you know, a high-level document that talked about our goals in cyberspace. Those goals haven't changed, but I do think that as we look at the various challenges we're facing in cyberspace, particularly by various threat actors around the world, we are going to continue to hone the way we implement those goals and achieve those goals. The strategy that we submitted to Congress uh, pursuant to the uh, requirement of the committee uh, talks about both some of the threat actors that we're seeing, but also some of the tools we have in our tool set to, to, uh, to mitigate those threats and go after those threats. Uh, and that's going to be a continuing conversation. It needs to be a continuing and flexible approach that we have that uses a lot of the tools in our national tool set, really all the tools we have. And those tools, one thing we said in our international strategy in 2011, is that we need to look at all the tools we have as a government, a whole of government approach that uses everything from our economic tools, our diplomatic tools, certainly what I do, uh, our uh, our law enforcement tools, uh, our uh, other trade tools that we might have, and even military tools in appropriate circumstances after we've exhausted other remedies. So we have to look at all the various tools we have. Uh, I'd say, and I'm, you know, on some of the issues you, uh, you raised, uh, uh, I don't think we have made complete attribution, but on some we have. Uh, we've been using a, very, a variety of those tools. Certainly, in terms of the diplomatic tools, we have used the tools that diplomats use. We have uh, used them both against the people we are unhappy with uh, and been very clear about what our concerns are. I would argue that uh, the U.S.-China agreement came about because this was raised consistently at a very high level of our government as a major area of friction that would affect not just cyber issues between our two countries, but really the whole of the relationship, and that was significant. I think the fact that we had other tools, including the law enforcement tools that were used to indict PLA officers in that case, or more recently, the indictment of the Iranian actors for the denial of service attacks and the, uh, the uh, penetration of the dam, is a significant use of those tools that sends a deterrent message, and that's important. Uh, we have a sanctions uh, regime for cyber. We also have, uh, thanks uh, to, uh, to you, uh, uh, to both of you, uh, a, a additional uh, sanctions authority for North Korea. We've used a North Korean sanctions authority back after the North Korea attacks with Sony a couple of years ago. Uh, so we've used those tools, uh, or we are, we are, we've used those tools, but we certainly have those other tools in our tool set. Uh, so we really do have a variety of different ways to go after that, but we have to understand this threat's going to continue and it's going to evolve, and we need to be ready to deal with that evolution and use, again, all the tools in partnership. So I have a role in this, but I work with all of my interagency colleagues uh, to do this. The other thing I'd mention is that part of the issue is also talking to our, not just our allies, but other countries about what threats are out there. So when I testified last year, uh, I mentioned that we were the first officer of our kind, uh, and that now there are over 20 country, uh, countries around the world that have offices like mine. And a, a, num a number of additional ones are looking at it. Australia just recently announced their cybersecurity strategy, and they're creating an office like mine, for instance. So more and more countries are doing that. And that's significant, because it means that we can, at a White House level, at a State Department level, talk, about, uh, talk with our other countries, and again, in a whole-of-government way, about what threats we're facing and what we, can, might, we might be able to do collectively. And then the third thing I mentioned goes back to the norms. And this is a long-term game. So we talked about law enforcement tools, we talked about trade tools, we talked about other tools. The norms of conduct that we're trying to promote and get more and more countries to sign up for and, and accept creates an environment of where there are rules of the road, uh, where there is an expectation of what's appropriate conduct in cyberspace. And if you have countries who are acting outside that uh, expectation, the countries who agree can act together to, to work against those transgressors. Now, that will take a while to build. We've had tremendous progress over the last year, but I think we're on the right track. In your testimony, in, in the written testimony, you talk about uh, the various tools, diplomatic tools, law enforcement tools, economic tools, military capabilities, and intelligence capabilities. Uh, obviously, you've talked a number of diplomatic tools uh, that have been utilized. 
I talked about law enforcement tools that have been used to investigate uh, cyber crimes and the work in partnership with other nations to help uh, to enlist them in this investigative effort. Uh, but the economic tools, I want to talk a little bit more about the economic tools. Could you talk a little bit about the, uh, the financial sanctions uh, and, and when a determination is made by, the, by state treasury uh, to move forward on economic sanctions? So the, as you know, the president signed uh, a couple of different executive orders. One right after the North Korea uh, Sony attacks where uh, that, that uh, were broad sanctions that went after members of the North Korean uh, Communist Party and members who, MPN people who supported them. Uh, two was the cyber sanctions uh, order, which was really the first of its kind anywhere in the world that uh, targeted specifically various kinds of very serious cyber conduct. And then third, just most recently, uh, the North Korea Sanctions Act. Uh, and together, and, and there is an EO now that, that gives voice to that last act as, long, as well as UN uh, uh, Security Council resolutions. Um, that first sanctions order against North Korea has been used. Uh, there is a, uh, the president at the end decides whether sanctions are used and it's the right tool. I would emphasize that's just one tool in the tool set. So uh, if you look at the various tools, you'll, you'll make a decision uh, of what tools are appropriate in what case, and that can be flexible depending on the various threats you face. Uh, to date, the cyber sanctions uh, order has not been used, but I'm fully confident it will be used. And I'd also say the fact that it exists has a deterrent effect in and of itself and, and also changes behavior. And that's, you're referring to Executive Order 13694, correct? That's correct. Is there any active consideration right now of sanctions under the executive order? I, 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 all I can say is that there is an interagency group that looks at this. It includes state, includes treasury, includes the White House, and includes other agencies as well. Uh, I can't make any statement about uh, actual designations under that, but as I said, this is an important tool in our tool set and one I'm confident will be used. Great. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you again. Um, we're almost at the year anniversary of the announcement of the uh, compromise by OPM of millions of Americans' uh, information uh, being compromised through a cyber attack. Millions of federal workers are at risk today as a result of that attack. Uh, their economic issues are very much at risk. Uh, and uh, as a result of that announcement, uh, I think it gave extra attention to the November agreement between the United States and China that we've referred to several times. Would the agreement we entered into with China uh, be uh, effective in preventing China from actively engaging in that type of uh, attack against American uh, federal workers? Uh, what I'd say is that we obviously take that kind of uh, activity very seriously. There's been a lot of work that the administration has done, including the one thing I didn't mention in response to Senator Gardner's uh, question, which is doing a lot of work to harden the targets, doing a lot of work to make sure we're doing deterrence by denial. So the recent CNAP announcements by the administration, both in terms of funding, but also in terms of the programmatic changes to make sure that there's better protection of government systems are, are part of how we keep that from happening in the future. Uh, the, you know, we have not made a, uh, any public attribution of the OPM attack, as I, I believe you know, uh, or the character of it, but I would, what I'd say is the agreement, what we did say to China at the time, and I think uh, Secretary, uh, Deputy Secretary Blinken mentioned this, is that kind of, uh, that kind of intrusion is just too big to ignore and too disruptive, and it's a real concern. With respect to the agreement that was made in the context of the Xi visit, um, there's agreement not to use cyber to steal intellectual property for purposes of benefiting a commercial sector. Um, that was something we don't do. We don't think any country around the world should do. And quite frankly, uh, as, as you know, uh, China was not willing to make that, uh, that uh, distinction, that the distinction between intelligence gathering that every country does and the kind of commercial theft and benefit that I they think, do. I think I know where your, your answer is leading, which is no, it wouldn't cover that type of a... But I, but I do think that the other thing it did was create a number of mechanisms, including well, the mechanism that's led by the Attorney General and the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security and the group that I lead that allows for messaging in those contexts where we didn't have those messaging channels before. Well, here's why I think it, it does cover that. China's largest companies are government-owned. So how do you deal with the issue of competitive advantage to companies 
commercial sectors, when you're dealing with a country, China, where so much of its economy is controlled by the government, does not their attack against our workforce very much affect their commercial advantage? Well, I, th I think specifically what the agreement, which then got you know uh, approved at, at the G20, and it's an agreement that also got approved just right after she was here for his a summit with Obama. He went to the UK. Uh, Prime Minister Cameron asked for a similar agreement. Angela Merkel asked for a senior a similar agreement, and then we had the um, uh, the G20 statement specifically talks about theft of trade secrets and intellectual property uh, as, as the thing that's being stolen to benefit a commercial sector. Now, there's many things, that, and, and even if it's a state-owned enterprise, I would submit that theft of intellectual property can be, if, even if it's going to a state-owned enterprise, violate that agreement if it's being used to benefit what's there in a commercial sector. So that is what we're working on. That's what we're looking at very closely. Of course, we want to stop all kinds of intrusions. Of course, we want to stop intrusions, even if they're for intelligence purposes. But we need to do as good a job as we can to both to make sure we're preventing those. And that's why the deterrence by denial and far better protection of our federal networks is really important. Are you prepared to advise this committee as to whether the agreement with China has resulted in a reduced amount of activity by China in its attempts to steal intellectual property from American companies? So I, what I, uh, the way I characterize this is the, uh, I think recently Admiral Rogers testified, not to this committee but another committee, that we are watching very closely and the jury's still out. I think uh, Director Comey, uh, said that he's seen some uh, some more cooperation on cybercrime cases. Uh, we are we are looking closely, and we're going to continue to look closely. And all of our government and all the the tools of our government are being used to make sure that that's being uh, that that commitment is being honored. I would also make clear, however, that as the president said, uh, words are not enough. We need to see that make sure actions are matching, and that we haven't taken any tools off the table. We haven't taken. Uh, any of the tools we have, any of the tools I talked about in response to Senator Gardner's question, off the table if we find that China is not complying with the agreement. Well, I, I would just point out, uh, I support moving forward with protocols of other countries. You're dealing with a controlled economy, you're dealing with a communist country in China, and if the agreement does not protect our federal workforce, then we can expect more in direct agreements with other countries. You don't invade the privacy of a workforce and call that intelligence gathering for your national security. That should be in the same category as the agreement that, that covers the theft of intellectual property. And uh, if you're dealing with a country that has controlled companies, then we need to also understand that that needs to cover the type of activities that are being done by the Chinese uh, government. So I, I hear what you're saying, and uh, the federal workforce very much depends upon the use of technology to protect them, but they also expect that we're going to be uh, raising these issues at the highest levels uh, in order to protect our workforce, because uh, they should not be fair game in uh, the world of uh, intellectual um, uh, uh, of, of cyber activities. No, and I, I don't disagree that the, I, I'm a member of the federal workforce, so I, I, I totally agree. I, I'm that sure we, that, <laughs> that we need to do everything. That there's an can. entity that now has all your personal information. Uh, I think we need to do everything by another we can country. to protect that information. I, I do think that you've seen a lot of activity, and it's really been sustained activity, but that some of the recent announcements that talk about, uh, for instance, appointing a federal CIA, uh, White House CISO, a Chief mm -hmm. Information Security Officer, we haven't had that before, trying to make sure we have much better protections, including the, uh, the DHS Einstein system. These are all critical, and this is not easy. I mean, you mentioned this is not easy because it's an asymmetric threat often and making sure that you get the protections in place. It's hard to protect systems, but there's a lot of work we can and should be doing, and, and we are. I'll, I have other questions, but I'll wait to the next round. Uh, thanks, Senator Cardin. And uh, just following up on the, the OPM question, in March, I think uh, mid-March, uh, Dr. Comey had a, uh, was a visit with uh, some high-level uh, Chinese officials on further cyber crime issues, investigations. Uh, do you know the, the subject matter of that conversation? Did it lead to OPM? What was their discussions about uh, cooperation on finalizing or getting resolution of the OPM? 
I, I, I will defer to the FBI for any uh, substance of any conversations and the law enforcement channels or investigatory channels, uh, so I, I have no real comment on that. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, one of the mechanisms that was set up was this mechanism that's led by the Attorney General and the Secretary of Homeland Security. Uh, there, there, there are a number of things that came out of that, including a protocol for making sure we're uh, both sharing and making requests of information from each other, uh, but I'm not going to comment on any specific conversation that DOJ was involved in. When talking about the tools available, uh, diplomatic tools, law enforcement tools, economic tools, and uh, denial um, uh, efforts uh, and deterrence, the State Department is in communication with the Department of Defense on a number of these issues. Has the State Department ever, um, ever sh denied a request by the Department of Defense for action in either retaliation or any other cyber uh, actions they wish to take? Uh, look, I, there's a number of ways that we talk to the Department of Defense, and we as a government look at all these various policy issues. And we've been very supportive of the Department of Defense's strategies for operating in cyberspace. They now have two of them out. I've worked uh, with them on those uh, documents. I have a call every two weeks with my counterpart uh, at DOD, at the OSD policy, where we talk about issues that are coming and, up. And who, who do you consider your counterpart to be? Uh, Aaron Hughes, okay. uh, who is the, uh, is the DASD for cyber, essentially for cyber over there. And before that, it was Eric Rosenbach, who's now the chief of staff to the secretary. Uh, so we have a very close coordination. We have, uh, one of the things I do in my own department is we have a monthly coordination group. In fact, we're meeting this afternoon. Uh, where we bring all the different agencies, including DOD, and all the different parts of the department together to discuss our international engagement strategy. Uh, and then the White House holds a number of meetings at an, uh, an IPC interagency policy committee uh, level, uh, at a CRG level, which I'll mention, I'll talk about in a moment, and also at deputies and principals level. So there's a lot of interaction. I'm not going to comment on specific operations or how those various things are considered, but I think one thing we're doing as a government that is, you know, first, and I mentioned in our strategy, uh, one of the tools we've seen is DOD developing its capabilities, having more mission teams that are dealing with this, and that's important. That's one part of deterrence. It's one part of our approach. Uh, so there has been much more activity. There's much more unity of purpose. There's much more discussion of this, and uh, our doctrine allows us to take all the different aspects into account, both uh, what aspects we need to go after wrongdoers, but also what the effects are on our foreign policy, what their effects are on other issues that we need to look at. Our, Policy, as I think you know, is to look at law enforcement and network security aspects when we're talking about cyber defense before going to other tools. Uh, also, certainly, DOD is looking at tools in areas of hostility uh, like ISIL, so you know, that, that's another issue that we've been working on. Uh, but I can't really get into those particular comments. But without getting into the specific, specifics of any kind of action, though, has the State Department uh, said no to any uh, Again, I can't really, I'm not going to really comment on discussions. I think there are continuing discussions, as there should be, on any possible operation that, uh, that we do. And, and that's the same for any of the other tools. Yeah, let me rephrase the question, then, I guess. Uh, are you in a position to say no to a Department of De Defense uh, strategy or, or? We, we have an interagency process, just like uh, DOD comments on our strategies and, indeed, commented on the strategy that I sent to you. We comment on strategies and, and things that they're doing as well. And so it, it really is a whole of government process. This is not any one agency acting on their own. We're working as a team. Okay, but if, if, if uh, for instance, North Korea, if uh, the Department of Defense decided to take an action against North Korea because of a Sony uh, attack or against Iran because of uh, a critical infrastructure. Uh, would the, that discussion that discussion would go to the State Department, correct? That that discussion would involve the State Department, but essentially it goes to the president. I mean, the president is the one who makes the decisions about uh, what tools we use and and what kinds of tools and when we use those tools. Who, who else in the White House is involved in that type of a decision on, on that? Cyber? Would be uh, you know there is just like there is in other areas. There's an interagency. There's the CRG, the Cyber Response Group, which is State ha is a member of that. Uh, that's essentially an IPC level discussion. Uh, discussions, depending on the particular topic, can go to a deputy's level and go to a principal's level, and ultimately the president. It involves the national security advisor, it involves uh, uh, the, uh, Lisa Monaco and others, it involves a range of different people. As we look at all these really important policy issues, and this, this Senator Gardner, is something that I personally have seen, as, you know, I've been doing this for various aspects for 26 years, I've seen a real change over the last five or six years where we do have a, a good process that comes together to make sure we're looking at all the different aspects of this. Now, this is not unique to cyber, to be sure, but I think this is one of the ways it's done. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, you mentioned earlier in your testimony that your office is the first office of its kind. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, and that uh, many other nations now, I think you said 20 other nations, are uh, creating some sort of office, uh, during the, the similar office. During the discussion and debate on the National Defense Authorization Act, there will be an amendment to create a uh, cyber, basically a cyber COCOM, a COCOM level a cyber command, combatant command level. Uh, do you believe that we should create any higher level uh, cyber department administration? Uh, do you believe that your position within the State Department should be elevated to uh, perhaps a special envoy level, ambassador level, um, so that we can fully focus on this and bring more? Because this is an issue that is gaining in strategic importance and is going to be with us uh, throughout uh, our coming lives. And so uh, are, are we focused enough on this and elevating enough to the level of importance that it deserves? I, I think we absolutely are. I mean, I'm essentially, I, mean, I report directly to the secretary. I'm in the secretary's office. The reason the office was created in the secretary's office was so that it could reach across the department in really a very collaborative way and work with everyone from, as, as Senator Hardin was talking about, our democracy and human rights people on issues around internet freedom, our economic bureau people on some of the economic and access issues and governance issues, our counterterrorism bureau uh, and, and terrorist use of the internet, our INL bureau and some of the capacity building around law enforcement issues, uh, ABC, uh, arms control and verification. So, so what I'd say is, the architecture, the way we set the architecture up was so that we can work with all these groups, and I mentioned this, uh, this recent, our, our, our monthly coordination group we have. Uh, I have not had any issue, I, I can say, in either meeting with other counterparts around the world at any level in foreign ministries. I haven't had any issue with our structure and making sure we can really aggressively go after the things we're trying to do. And, and really, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a former prosecutor, so I'm an impatient person as a rule, but the fact that we were able in the last year to do as much as we've done, and something where just a year ago, just a year ago I was sitting here and I was telling you about these norms of behavior, and that's when they first got some publicity when I was telling you about it. And a year later, we have all this activity. That's significant. So, so the, neither the department or I personally really feel that we need to change it. What I'd say is I want to make sure that whoever comes in in the next administration, and I think this will happen, uh, at both the presidential level and the secretarial level, continues to really see this as a priority area. And as a, as a coordinator, I am one of the, the special envoys, if you will. I'm one of the people who looks across the department and works with the department to make sure we're elevating this issue, which didn't really even exist as an issue, uh, issue area five years ago. But in, in terms of a, 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 a own, its own bureau, uh, don't think I, it should necessarily be its own bureau? Yeah, so here's the problem with its, its own bureau, and this is something that's been raised before. If you think about the cross-cutting nature of this issue, and, and Senator Cardin, you mentioned this as well, when you're talking about everything from human rights and the importance of human rights, uh, cybersecurity, cybercrime, international security, internet governance, capacity building, if you create a bureau, you do two things. One, you stovepipe it so that other people will say, well, that's a boutique issue, you guys go and deal with that. Two, you would pull the people out of all the bureaus that need to do this. We're trying to mainstream this issue with the State Department. We're trying to make this something that is like every other foreign policy issue. We want people to, to deal with this in every bureau, regional bureau and functional bureau. If you create a bureau, you have to pull the people out, and frankly, they have to replicate it anyway, so that's not very effective. And we haven't seen that being done in other uh, countries around the world. I mean, they have the same sort of coordination function uh, that they, they pursue. So I think that actually is counterproductive to us making progress in this area because it is, by its nature, a distributed issue. I'd say one other thing. We, you know, to give you an example of some of the things we've done, we just, a couple of weeks ago, and I think I mentioned this to you when I saw you both recently, had a training for our, essentially our cyber diplomats from over 100 posts around the world. We brought back the folks in those embassies who are charged with this issue. We're looking at this cross-cutting issue. We've told each of them in the embassies to build a cross-cutting team. Get the political cone, get the economic cone, get the legat if there is one, get the, uh, the uh, defense attache, get the whole group in the embassy to have a mini team on this. And that's really the model we're trying to promote. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you for mentioning human rights. Uh, human rights, uh, I've been told uh, by the leaders in the Obama administration, is one of the Obama administration's top priorities for advancing not just American ideals, but our national security, because it very much affects the stability of regimes uh, and uh, prevents uh, the voids from cre being created that adds to radicalization. So let me um, just find out from you how active you are 
in promoting human rights in our cyber strategies. We have export control laws that deal with our weapon systems because we understand that American technology should not be used against America's national security. So therefore, we restrict the ability of manufacturers uh, to be able to export U.S. technology. They have to proceed under certain procedures. America technology in the cyber area is the best in the world. What steps are we taking to make sure that American companies are not exporting technology and cyber that's being used by repressive regimes to violate the human rights of its citizens? So, so this is an issue we are very concerned about, and uh, we, uh, you know, we're certainly concerned about the use of these technologies, but as I think you also know, they're dual-use technologies. Uh, a, a, we're both concerned about technologies that can be used by repressive regimes to monitor their citizens, but we're also worried about tools that can be used by, by regimes that are not our friends to attack us. So we don't want to have either of those things happen. And uh, we, we want to make sure that, and we are committed to keeping the most dangerous cyber tools from the most dangerous actors. Uh, at the same time, you know, we're also committed to supporting the ability of our businesses, our consumers, and the government to defend themselves from cyber threats and to promote innovation in cybersecurity. So, you know, we, we have to, we've been talking a lot to our industry colleagues uh, about this issue. As I think you may know, there was an agreement in the so-called Vassenar, uh, 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 the Vassenar group, uh, to create certain controls for cyber technology that could either be used, as you said, for, by repressive regimes for monitoring of their citizens or to attack us. Uh, we are, and the Department of Commerce is in particular, looking at how to get that implemented. We're actually going back to Wassenaar, uh, which has 40 participating states, to uh, talk about how those might actually apply and whether we need to make some changes in, the, in those controls that were agreed to. That's just one area of nonproliferation, but that's an important one, and we need to make sure that we're addressing this. And even as we talk to Wassenaar about making changes so we can promote innovation and cybersecurity while at the same time targeting the behavior you talk about, uh, we need to do that in the right way. So whatever will happen with Wassenaar and the negotiations there, we also, as we implement this, need to make sure we walk that line in an appropriate way. Uh, and we, will, we have been talking a lot, and Commerce has, to our private sector, but we'll also have at least another uh, another well, we do know that American, American companies today are using their technology to support repressive policies of other countries as a way of gaining entry into the markets of those countries. Are we trying to develop policies that will prevent the use of American technology for the repressive actions of regimes against its own people? Uh, as I said, I think that, that one area where we've, we've done this is in this, this Vassenaar area, but it's a very delicate balance to make sure we're not stifling either innovation or stifling cybersecurity. That's one area. The other is, is my colleagues uh, in DRL have been promoting, uh, we have been promoting together, the idea of business responsibility and protection of fundamental human rights uh, and how you have businesses look at that issue. And the thing that we're promoting there and in a couple different aspects. One is the Global Network Initiative, which is a, a group of businesses that looks at what the ethics are and what the rules are for, for, for businesses, and this is a voluntary association. A number of businesses are part of that. The other is in the context of something called the Freedom Online Coalition, which I think I mentioned to you last year that me and Tom Malinowski had just gone to the meeting, and we support that group very much. It's gonna have the next meeting in Costa Rica, so in our region for the first time coming up this year, which is significant because getting more of our region uh, as part of that, that's important. And I should also say that as we do these all-of-government dialogues that we do with multiple countries around the world now, human rights are always a part of that. And so it's not just about cybersecurity. Human rights are a part of it. And as we do capacity building, we weave that in too. But this uh, Freedom Online Coalition has talked about some of the responsibilities of businesses, some of the, the tension between security and human rights, uh, and, and that's a continuing discussion. So this is not an easy area. Uh, but we want to make sure, as I said, that the most dangerous tools are not given the most dangerous actors while at the same time making sure we're protecting innovation. I would hope that you would be aggressive in developing protocols related to the use of technology uh, as well as some of the other areas that you're working on as it relates to protecting human rights. Uh, I would also hope as you look at this delicate balance, and it is a delicate balance, I don't deny that, but I would hope that you will use um, the same 
sensitivities that we use for military arms as we use for internet technology so that we are not wrapped up in the, the view that the internet is so global that technology development in the United States must be immediately made available globally uh, when it can be used by repressive, repressive regimes to trample on the human rights of its citizens. I also think there's got to be a, a trade-off with, with corporate responsibility. And there needs to be uh, protocols in which American businesses are prepared to adhere to and not just uh, yield to the unreasonable demands of repressive regimes. Let me ask one more question, if I might, Mr. Chairman, and that is, can you tell me or do you intend to clarify when an attack on cyber uh, would trigger an inherent right of self-defense pursuant to Article 51 of the UN Charter? When do we get to that point? Yeah. So uh, a couple of things. I don't think we have actually defined that with exceptional clarity in the physical world either. And there's a reason for that, uh, because it's often dependent on the circumstances of the attack. However, there's nothing magic about cyber. But when, if, you, when you say that, and I understand the sensitivities but, here again, but, but if it isn't clear, then countries can try to test and test and test and pull us to the line and say they didn't know that that would trigger uh, the uh, military response on self-defense. Right. Uh, so, uh, so to me, clarity is important here. So as I said, we don't do this in the physical world. There's a reason, uh, not just the fact it's a factual basis, but if you create clear red lines, you'll which have- we do, Which we do on well, physical invasion of a NATO ally, that's a clear red line. But there, and in cyberspace, as you create some clear red lines, you give an incentive to actors to creep up to that red line knowing that they don't risk retaliation or don't risk uh, response, and that doesn't create a good environment either. So you do need, and I think the deterrence strategy that was submitted by the Department of Defense uh, recently talked about the need for some strategic ambiguity here, which is important. Now, we have said, and one of the things we got agreement with, both in the context of the, this recent GGE, is Article 51 actually does apply to cyberspace, and that there, there is activity, and that activity could be looked at just like you look at physical activity. Is it causing uh, death and serious injury? Is it causing major damage? Those are the kind of factors that, that are used now to look at physical space. Use the same factors in cyberspace. You don't use a different set of factors. And so that's one of the things we're pursuing. And then I, I, one of the other issues, as you know, we continue to make sure that cyber is part of NATO's, uh, uh, NATO's core operating precepts, and we've said, uh, that you know, Article 5 in NATO could apply in a cyber incident. It's going to be a case-by-case -case basis, but we're going to look at all those factors as well. well I should well, also just mention, you know, the, to Senator Gardner's question about uh, the Bureau, the issues you raised with respect to human rights is another reason why, when my office was created, the point was to not just look at the security issues, but to draw in all these other interests and make sure that our approach both upheld human rights and looked at the security issues, and it's important to have those together. I just would uh, underscore this point. I, I don't follow your point on Article 51, and I'll, I'll say the reasons why. When you're talking about conventional threats, you know when those conventional threats have been initiated, and you know the consequences if you don't defend yourself from those attacks. In cyber, we're being attacked every second. And to a large extent, the consequences depend upon the success of the cyber attacks. And we may not know about the, the cyber attacks, as in the OPM uh, hack. We didn't know about it until well after they had penetrated and gotten the information, which puts millions of Americans at risk, at risk. So I don't know if, what, I understand you want to use conventional standards for whether we have our security has been uh, compromised from the point of view of public safety, et cetera. But in cyber, you just don't have the luxury of knowing that until maybe it's too late. So therefore, a country will say, we'll take it to the point until we get discovered, and then we'll say, gee, we didn't mean to do it, and therefore, there's no response under Article 51. But, but you know, there, there is no limitation that we cannot take a range of different actions. The whole 
idea of having all these different tools that we talked about in our toolkit is that we can take those actions, even if it doesn't reach the level of an Article 51 armed attack. An armed attack is a specific term that triggers the right to self-defense in a particular way. And even when that threshold is reached, we sometimes, as a country, might decide not to respond I in that I, way. I'm so we can use military's all these last resort, and, always. Well, right. So we can still use all these tools we have. And I, I'd also say there is a difference, and I think uh, the DNI talked about this recently, or not that recently, but fairly recently. There's a difference between an attack and an intrusion. An attack and a destructive attack is different than an intrusion, and the kind of disruptive effects it has under international law. And you know, one of the things, we have been pioneering this idea as part of our framework, the international law applies in cyberspace. That wasn't clear a couple of years ago. It was seen as a free fire zone. International law means there are rules, including the triggering of Article 51, including proportionality distinction when you actually have a shooting war. So all those things are important. And we need to look at all the tools we have, even if it's below that threshold. The idea behind the norms I talked about, not attacking the critical infrastructure of another country absent wartime, is that give us uh, some rules of the road, even when you don't reach that high level, to, because that's the activity we see every day. We don't see the armed conflict every day. We see the theft of intellectual property. We see potential attacks against infrastructures. We see attacks against certs. Those are the rules of the ro ro road we're trying to promote so that we have activities we can do even below that high threshold. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cardin. And, and Mr. Painter, just to follow up a few of those questions. Uh, on critical infrastructure in particular, do you think that Russia's attacks against Ukraine's power grid in 2015, December, uh, violated its commitment to the United Nations on critical infrastructure? Uh, we, uh, as I believe you know, we have not made any attribution of that incident. We are very concerned about that kind of attack and that kind of incident, and we have characterized that as attack. We had a uh, group, uh, interagency group at DHS and DOE and others, uh, work the Ukrainians in the, the, the aftermath of that. Um, so it is something that's concerned. One of the things that we've done is, uh, not me personally, but our DHS colleagues uh, also made that, uh, made warnings to our own electrical grid and made sure that they were aware of what the risks were of this kind of attack going forward. So it's something we take very seriously, but I'm not gonna, I, I, you know, we haven't attributed that, and I'm not gonna attribute it, and I'm not gonna characterize what it is. Uh, do, do you believe that Russia is still attempting to penetrate U.S. critical infrastructure? I, I, I would defer to what the DNI said in terms of, um, Russia being one of the, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea being some of the major, the major threat actors we're seeing and that Russia has a full spectrum of activities, but in this setting I won't. And so does that activity that. violate their commitment to the United Nations? I, again, I'm, I'm not going to characterize what Russia is doing in this setting. However, uh, if there is an attack, you know, our view, and it's a voluntary norm, uh, it's a voluntary norm at this point, which has been agreed to, but if, if there is an attack on critical infrastructure, uh, by another country. First of all, we're going to take it seriously whether there's a norm or not. We're going to take, we're going to be able to use all the tools we have in our toolkit. Second, uh, we don't want any country to do that. And that's exactly why we are promoting those norms around the world. And if countries do do it, then we have to make sure we can work with other countries against those transgressors and also use the tools we have to defend ourselves. And, and so when we see penetration by Russia or Iran into critical infrastructure of the United States, uh, whether that's an actual attack or whether that is a preparing the battlefield as it was as it was characterized in one point, uh, is that a violation of United Nations? Uh, I, I think we are we are concerned about we are certainly concerned about those kinds of penetrations and those intrusions. And I think, as you know, in the case of Iran, there was an indictment from our Department of Justice against an actor not just for the denial of service attacks that we played a role in mitigating. I mentioned last time we were here, the State Department actually worked with other countries to ask them to mitigate the botnets all over the world, but also into the penetration of the dam and the SCADA system there. Those are really concerning issues, and we're going to make sure that we use the tools we have. In this case, uh, there's been an indictment. There could be other tools in the future. Do you think that, uh, and have you witnessed a change in behavior uh, from Iran toward the United States uh, in terms of cyber activities against the United States since the nuclear agreement of October 2015? Did you anticipate a change? I, I would defer that question to the DNI, who I think has addressed this in a more classified setting. Um, and uh, we believe that there was an article in the New York Times. I, I would say the DNI has continued to characterize Iran as one of the threat actors, Iran, North Korea, uh, Russia, and China. And both before and after the nuclear agreement. I think his recent, uh, the DNI threat assessment was relatively recent. Uh, your response uh, to revelations, I think it was in the New York Times, regarding U.S. capabilities to significantly degrade or destroy Iran's nuclear capabilities before the JCPOA negotiations began. Uh, there was an article that talked about uh, had they failed, there was a, a possible cyber 
exercises could be taken against Iran to bring down their nuclear provisions. Were you a part of those discussions? I, I, again, I can't, I can't comment on any operations or any plans that the United States may have had uh, in this area, particularly in But was State Department Cyber Office involved? I, I would in say discussions? more generally, the State Department is at some, at some level is involved in all the decisions involving uh, the use of cyber capability. Was the Office of Cyber? Again, I can't really get into that in this. Uh, I guess I just want to know whether or not you were part we, of any discussion. Our, our, either our office or the State Department as a whole, depending on what the particular issue is, is involved in these discussions as a policy matter all the time. So if it's the and I'm not going again. I can't comment on that particular. Yeah, I'm not trying to get you to give me any details yeah. of it, but I'm just I just want to make well, sure even, that I understand. Well, even I'm not going to even comment on whether that was actually a, a fact or whether that was being considered. Uh, I, I will leave that uh, for. I'm not going to comment on that. However, I, what I'd say is, uh, the State Department is involved in discussions with respect to uh, really all the tools we use as part of the interagency discussion. And and one of the changes that I mentioned before is that. You know, I'd say you know, many several years ago, the State Department had much more of a um, uh, a minor involvement in a lot of these discussions, and now I think the discussions are the State Department is one of the key players as we discuss any of these issues. Mm -hmm. um, the the cyber agreement that Senator Cardin spoke of earlier, uh, how involved was the State Department in drafting that, or oh, your office the, in drafting the cyber agreement? You mean with the, uh, with the President Chinese? Uh, very, very involved. Uh, so uh, there was, um, I think, as you know, the uh, President Xi sent out his special envoy uh, among, uh, to um, the United States about 10 days before the official visit. Uh, there were a number of meetings which I personally participated in and a meeting also the Secretary Kerry participated in, so we were very involved in that. And we were involved in the negotiations, the all-night negotiations that led to that agreement, and, and I personally was. So we were very, uh, we were very involved in that. Senator Cardin. Uh, final questions I have. I know we're going to be voting here soon. Uh, just in, in terms of China's activities, um, you mentioned that we, it's, too, it's, it's premature to comment on whether the agreement has actually uh, deterred the collection of commercial information for, um, for the gain of its own commercial sector. Uh, we talked about Russia's possibility of attacks against Ukraine, uh, whether or not that violates uh, the agreements of the United Nations. Talked about Iran's activities and uh, the identifying China Russia, Iran as ongoing challenges for the United States in cyber. Is it time for a new framework of negotiation? We know Russia and China will not agree uh, on what we believe should be uh, secure cyberspace, open free internet. Is it time that we move forward with uh, like-minded nations, the Five Eyes or the Ottawa Group, that we move forward uh, in, in our own uh, ideas with our own nations to create a block of interested parties that can then use that as leverage against others who simply aren't going to behave the way they should according well, to the Well, that, that's, that's precisely what we're doing with these norms. So even though it's important to get China and Russia to agree to it as key countries, and that's what we've been doing, uh, we have been trying to expand the, expand the like-minded tent where we, certainly with our, our five I allies, but also with uh, the EU and other countries in Europe, with, uh, with uh, countries in our own region, the whole idea of this expansion, and I'd mentioned that just in, you know, one of the other things that's happened last year is that the president in almost every meeting with a foreign leader, in every summit, uh, or when we have high-level meetings with other governments on a diplomatic level, has raised this issue of the importance of norms in cyberspace, the importance of this international security framework. And, and to give you an example, Japan, India, uh, China, Pakistan, the uh, East Asian uh, Summit, uh, USEU uh, and at my level, Australia, ASEAN, uh, the G7 foreign ministers meeting, and the GCC have all had statements. And re most recently, just a couple weeks ago, when the Nordic leaders were all here, there was a statement about cyber and norms in there. So that's important to continue to advance that framework. That's different than trying to have a, 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 a cyber treaty. And I think one of the concerns we have about the cyber treaty is that's often advocated by the Chinese and Russians to try to control cyber weapons, as they say. Uh, but really, they're trying to control, and this goes to Senator Cardin's point, really they're trying to control information. They're trying, they, they view information as destabilizing, and they talk about information security. That's not a productive path for us. That's why the path that we've chosen, which I think is the most productive, is to promote how international law applies, norms in cyberspace, and confidence-building measures. 
among our like-minded, but make the like-minded tent bigger. And that means working with the developing world as well. And a lot of the capacity building efforts are aimed that way. But to those agreements, I mean, that obviously doesn't include Russia or, or China. Well, Russia and China have signed up to the uh, to the agreements within the GG. They're part, and they will be part of the. They August continue GG. to to violate. Uh, they, you These know, norms. they continue to pose concerns, but so do other countries and other actors, including criminal and other actors, transnational organized groups around the world. So we need to promote and create expectations of what these agreements mean and what consequences will be. That's part of the long-term effort, Senator. So this the, is the, not an overnight development. So the model of like-minded nations, though, if we were to enter into some kind of agreement on uh, this uh, universal uh, agreement areas, I mean, I, excluding them because obviously they're not going well, to Well, no, I, I think it's, look, I think it's important if we're trying to promote international cyber stability. And the reason I think there's been uptake on these norms is that Russia and China don't want their critical infrastructures attacked either. We want the widest possible uh, group that's agreeing to those. And then we want to be able to act collectively against transgressors. We're not there yet. We've made tremendous progress in the last year. But as you know, part of our strategy going forward is getting more and more countries to sign up to it. An agreement, trying to do some, uh, some written agreement, I just think is premature in this area. There's too much more we need to do to understand what the expectations are, even with our close allies, and we're continuing to do that. But it's clear that, I mean, that you would agree that neither China nor Russia has lived up to their... I, I, I would not say that. I'd say that the, these, this framework, international law, the norms in cyberspace and confidence building measures are, incre are increasing and will increase international stability. Yes, there continue to be threat, threat actors out there. Yes. Countries around the world will continue to gather intelligence, as countries have since the beginning of time. We need to do a better job, and so do other countries, in protecting ourselves against it. But trying to take off the most destabilizing contact off the table and have mechanisms to discuss and raise with them, that's what the confidence-building measures are about, are part of that, that way of addressing that. And then, frankly, the backup to all this is all the tools I talked about before. If, if countries are not uh, abiding by that, to use all the tools, including diplomatic, which is my area, but also our law enforcement tools, our trade tools, our, you know, uh, uh, the range of tools we have. We need to be ready and willing and continue to use those. Does the range of tools include things like a, a strategy to ban cyber weapons, uh, similar to like an NPT kind of thing? I, I, I think, again, I, th I don't know what a cyber weapon is. I think that the problem is we look at effects. The norms no, I But it's important that we do know what a cyber weapon well, is because no, no, that no. means because a cyber weapon triggers under Article 51 and others. But no, a cyber weapon could be uh, can be dual uh, use, and, and that's particularly true in the cyber arena. So what we focused on instead of cyber weapons is we looked at effects. So if you look at the norms we're ta talking about, it's what effects will they have? You know, attack on critical infrastructure. What's the endpoint? Not what tool do you use? What whether that's a dual use tool or not? And so trying to restrict a quote-unquote cyber weapon, I think, first of all, with changing technology is not going to work. And secondly, I think it would have an effect on terms of the dual-use technologies that are used to protect us. Is there any dual use for malware or ransomware? I think researchers will tell you that they use malware and, and antivirus companies and others to try to protect our systems and better understand the threats are out there. So it, I think, It's sort of a good Samaritan approach, correct? Well, I think you have to be careful in terms of what you're actually trying to control. This is exactly the issue that we've raised, that we've uh, run up into in the Vassanar arrangement, where we're trying to make sure we walk that balance. We're prohibiting governments from getting really bad tools that we don't want them to have, but at the same time, we're not uh, inadvertently or vertently actually affecting industry's ability to protect itself with new and innovative tools. So you don't anticipate any kind of like a weapons of mass destruction type uh, ban uh, when it comes to cyber because you're concerned that we can't define I, what I is th a cyber weapon I, or weapon of mass Senator, destruction. What I'd say, Senator, is I think the, the correct course is for us to, us and our, not just our allies, but as big a community as we can, we can muster, to pursue this idea of what effects we're trying to control what are the rules of the road? What are the norms that we want? How does international law apply? How do we communicate with each other? And there's been a lot of good work there, too, to make sure we have a long-term stable environment in cyberspace. That's what we need to do. That's, I think, a more effective route, especially now. We're still in the beginning of this conversation. Yes, we had lots of progress since I talked to you last year. But you compare this to the nuclear or other world, we're really in the infancy of a lot of these conversations. So I think that the, role, the, the path we're on is exactly the right path to raise awareness about these issues and what the threats are and to talk about what things that we're not going to do and we don't think anyone should do. And I think that's more effective than going to some treaty. Final question. Senator Carter, did you have anything that you wanted to ask? I, no, I, I'm fine. Okay. Again, I think. Yeah, just just one question. I mean, is there a discussion amongst nations to try to define what a cyber weapon is? I think the, uh, there has been discussions in the past, and it's always run into some of the problems that I've mentioned, that, that with dual-use technology and new sorts of attacks and new technologies in place, you know, it's difficult to say what a quote-unquote cyber weapon is, and I think more and more countries are looking at 
what are the effects we're trying to prohibit? But if we, if we had some kind of an agreement amongst nations of what a cyber weapon is and defining their dual use, but when used a certain way as a weapon, wouldn't that help? I, I, I don't, again, I think it runs into all the problems that I just mentioned. It runs into all the problems in terms of how do you define it and does that cover inadvertently uh, things that you need for research, things that you need to actually protect ourselves from, from some of the computer security companies. I think, that, again, I think the most effective way to address this is to go after what effects we're looking at, make sure that there's some clear understandings of what effects that we don't think countries should do and that there are consequences for those effects. But we have agreements on radioisotopes and other things that are dual use. Uh, why can't we do it with cyber? I think it's much more complicated in this area than that. I think that these, uh, these first of all, radioisotopes are radioisotopes and these, these kinds of tools will continue to evolve and change and have different uses, so I don't think we can really freeze this in place. Thank you. Senator Cardin, uh, if, if no further questions, uh, I want to thank you, Mr. Painter. We're, I believe the vote is, is started. So thanks to everyone for attending today's hearing and to Mr. Painter for providing us with your testimony. For the information of the members of the committee, the record will remain open until the close of Business Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Mr. Painter would ask that you please promptly reply to any questions for the record as soon as possible, and they will be made a part of the record. With the thanks to the committee, this hearing is now adjourned. Thank you, thank you very much. Thanks.